Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Why don't we start with the LA Lakers? The Lakers have just Lakered themselves yet again. They beat the Nuggets last night in the final game of the year, and then they Lakered the hell out of everything. You know, playing without, well, essentially anybody you've ever heard of. The Lakers came back from down big in the final minute to go into overtime, and then they win. They end up their regular season winning consecutive games for the first time since January. And yes, you heard me correctly. They won two straight games for the first time in more than three months. That's how crappy they were this year. That's how much of a disappointment they were. First time in three months, they went back-to-back games. And even then, they managed to Laker it up, which is to say totally bleep it up. Last night, Woj tweeted, and I quote, Frank Vogel has coached his final game for the Lakers, a decision that's expected to be shared with him as soon as Monday, sources tell ESPN. Lakers' search expected to be lengthy and expansive with no clear initial frontrunner. End of tweet. And also, according to Bill Oram, that tweet was posted 17 minutes before Vogel got to the interview room last night, which is how you get this brutally, brutally awkward moment. Frank, right at the end of the game, Adrian Wojnarowski tweeted that um, the Lakers are going to be firing you, a decision they'll let you know tomorrow. Have you communicated with the front office at all about your future? And I guess what's your reaction to, to hearing that? Uh, my reaction is, uh, I haven't been told Incredible. I mean, incredible. What a look, Lakers. What an incredible look. After an entire season of hideous looks, they saved the very best for last. And by very best, I mean the absolute worst. The worst look ever. What a total disgrace. Quote, I haven't been told bleep is absolute bleep i haven't been told amazing like i've got no problem at all with Woj. i have no issue never i mean never with old Woj. tweeting what he tweeted to me is not an issue that's not the thing that's his job as a reporter he is supposed to report the information that he knows and the Lakers' job is to handle their business like pros and not be completely bush league about anything and everything they do. But that's exactly what they are, bush league. That's complete bullcrap. Not only do they not know how to run a basketball team, they don't even know how to handle business. They suck at business as much as they suck at basketball. Again, I don't have a problem with Woj's tweet. I don't even have a problem with them firing Vogel. But I do have a problem with how they went about it. Notice what Woj said in his tweet. Quote, Frank Vogel has coached his final game for the Lakers, a decision that's expected to be shared with him as soon as Monday. Sources tell ESPN. End of quote. I mean, incredible. In other words, somebody with the Lakers was telling Woj before they told Vogel. And if that isn't the most Laker thing ever, I don't know what the hell is. They already made the decision, and they told Woj that they were firing Vogel before they told Vogel they were firing Vogel. And then they weren't going to get around to it until later today. I mean, again, complete and utter bullcrap. That is Nick stuff right there. The Lakers really are the Knicks West. Or the Knicks are the Lakers East. You make your pick. The only difference here is the Lakers have had the superstars who paper over the cracks and win enough to cover up all that bull crap. Because they're the biggest crap show ever right about now. Only the Lakers could fire a guy and not tell him but instead tell the rest of the world. A giant load of crap on top of the crap sando that was their season. They let this guy twist for three months and didn't have the decency to handle it right when they actually did get around to firing him. 
And no, it's not a surprise that they're firing Vogel. That's not even the point. I'm sure Vogel knew that he was going to be fired. It's the fact that they're doing him this dirty because this is dirty as hell. It's like apparently, I didn't know this, but apparently Chris Carter is now a part of that enormous brain trust consulting on major Lakers decisions. You've got to have a fall guy in the crew. (laughs) Got to, right? Got to have a fall guy. So along with Irv, a.k.a. Traj, Phil, Rob Lopalenka, the Rambi, and the dude who murdered Space Jam and ruined the Looney Tunes for an entire generation of children. I guess Chris Carter's in there helping out. Because the Lakers got themselves a fall guy, all right. And they just ran that guy right in front of the team bus and dragged him a few hundred times. Like, there are five guys who have led the Lakers to NBA titles, and you just crapped all over one of them on the way out the door. The Lakers organization just seems to think that there is some magic on those jerseys, but there's not. The magic in those jerseys was because magic was in those jerseys. Magic, Kareem, Wilt, Kobe, Jerry, LeBron. I mean, not only is it Bush and a bad reflection on everybody in the Lakers organization to treat Vogel like this, it's also really, really bad business, all right? Because how you treat Frank Vogel is a signal to every other coach about how you're going to treat them too. Do you really think that the names that you're hearing, these high-level coaches, elite coaches, and by the way, they just crapped on a guy that led them to a championship, but do you really think these other elite coaches that they think they're going to get, that they're going to want to talk to, guys like Quinn Snyder or Doc Rivers or even Jawan Howard, the face snatcher, or whoever else looks at that is going to say, yeah, you know what? I want in on that. That looks pretty cool. I want in on that. I want in on a crappy roster with aging talent and an organization that embarrasses their coaches. Who's going to say, I want that? I want to go work for a team where I can get stabbed in the back by Rob Lopalenka. I can't wait to take coaching advice from that dude with the glasses who Kevin McHale bodied into the next century back in the day. Or even better, I can't wait to work for a team where the owner's friends seem to call the shots and not people who actually know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, I mean, sure, somebody will take the job because the checks won't bounce and because they think they can have success. Just don't give me this crap that Vogel was the problem, and that Vogel knew he was going to be fired, so what's the big deal? The deal is there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do it. There's a right way, and then there is the Laker way. The Lakers used to be the gold standard. The Lakers were showtime. The Lakers were classy. Now they're dirty and cowardly. Cowards. I never thought that I would see the day when the Lakers, or I should say the Clippers, were the classier NBA team in L.A. Just step back from that for a minute. Did you ever think that the Clippers, long the laughingstock not just of this town, but the entire association, did you ever think you would see the day that the Clippers would completely lap and outclass the Lakers? Because that is the case. Because the Lakers are an absolute bleep show. As far as Vogel, like he's too classy a guy to to not continue his real answer. I mean, he started that answer, but you know what he wanted to say. And you know if he were anybody other than him, what he would have said would have been something like, quote, I haven't been told bleep. I haven't been told But it doesn't surprise me because that's how this front office has operated from day one. In fact, I wanted to bounce months ago when Westbrick walked right through that door. Westbrick. Get me the hell out of here. One, two, three, Maui. One, two, three, St. Bart's. One, two, three, the Bahamas. 
What an embarrassment. Man, handle your business. What a crap show. Hey, like, I'm embarrassed. Business is business. Your business is business. And with the Lakers, it's the worst kind of business. I mean, I'm not even a fan. I got nothing invested. I've got no dog here. In this fight, I couldn't care less. Now I'm embarrassed. But seriously, from a business standpoint, if you're a prospective coach and you saw the way they just did that guy, would you really want any of that? Never mind how crappy that roster is. Would you really want in on that? How much would they have to pay you if you were anybody who mattered to sign up for that? Hey, listen, skincare can be really complicated, especially for men who have never had a skincare routine. This is where Tiege Hanley comes in. Tiege Hanley is a men's skincare company that helps guys start and maintain a healthy skincare routine by making the process uncomplicated. Every single box comes with an instruction card that tells you when to use each product, how much to use, and in what order. I'll tell you what, you should start with the level one system. It is the easiest way to get started, and it comes with all of the basics that guys need to take care of their skin. I'm telling you, I love the product because I was one of those guys, even as somebody who's on TV or in front of a camera, I never really had that great routine, and now I do. And I do because of Tiege Hanley. Listen. Because Tiege Hanley is sponsoring today's app, they are offering you an amazing deal. Just go to Tiege.com slash Rome, and you'll get 30% off your first box plus a free gift. That's T-I-E-G-E dot com slash Rome. T-I-E-G-E dot com slash Rome. It is an amazing deal. Tiege.com slash Rome. Luke Fickle. Luke, it is great to have you back. How are you? Jim, great to be here. Appreciate you having me. Really good to have you. Appreciate you too. All right, so you're coming off the best pro or best season in school history. I'm kind of curious, what is the vibe like in and around the program this spring? What's it like right now? Well, it's exciting. I mean, I think there's so many things that are buzzing that everybody wants to talk about, you know, with the guys and, and the draft and the combine and all this stuff. And then there's this other group of 85 guys that uh, are kind of trying to stay focused and locked into you know, moving on and, uh, you know, replacing or, or reloading from those uh, those guys that are going to be drafted here in a, in a couple weeks. So a lot of positives, a uh, lot of energy, um, but it's it's probably the most difficult thing is just trying to stay focused on, on you know, moving forward for, for a lot of us, whether it's me, myself, or, or you know, a lot of these guys that are out here uh, busting their butt in spring football. All right, so I think that's really interesting what you just said. I was going to get into all of that with you, but what about that point that you just made? For instance, I've heard you say, Luke, that it's the most important spring since you've been there. Can you break that down? What do you mean by that? And then how is the guy or are the guys who are still there responding to that challenge thus far? Well, they're doing well. I, I really do believe so. I mean, obviously we're pushing and pushing, but – uh, the re- the reason I think it's most difficult is it's the first time that I mean I think last year we had some you know some obviously some praise and some some incredible expectations going into this season um, but I think this year's different obviously coming off of the season that we had um, so there's a lot of attention there's a lot of excitement there's a lot of positive people are telling you all these things patting you on the back and then the reality is you got a lot of these guys that aren't going to be here and I don't just mean you know not just great players that are gone but I mean you start to lose those guys that were here in year one that took the lumps, you know, took a beating and, and worked and worked and worked. Um, so they all understood and knew how much it took to get to where we are today. And we still have a couple of those guys, but for the most part, we don't have a whole lot of those guys that have taken those uh, shots in year one and, you know, won four games when probably should have only won one game. So, for me, sometimes those are the things that stick in my head is do these guys really truly understand what it has taken to get you know, the program to where it is and, and our team to where it is. And so maybe that's something that I over worry about, but um, I think that's why to me it's as difficult of a time as ever, not just replacing those guys, but making sure the mindset hasn't changed um, and all that we've done in five years. Luke Fickle joining us. So what we're talking about here is mindset. We're talking about culture. We're talking about certain intangible things that are hard to see, but you know it when you see it, even if you can't see it. Here's the thing. Like a lot of programs talk about this notion that tradition never graduates or that expectations remain the same no matter who leaves. But when you're replacing talent like Desmond Ritter, Sauce Gardner, and the rest, how do you go about making that a reality? Well, I think the way 
the way we started off was in year one is that we had one objective and one goal, and it was to play for a championship regardless. You know, so hopefully in the mindset is we haven't changed so the expectations are the same. It's not because you made the playoffs all of a sudden you change the, hey, we're going to make the playoffs and we're going to win, you know, in the playoffs. It's still about, hey, guys, it's still about playing for championships. I mean, you got to put yourself in that situation. So hopefully, you know, you're not getting overboard with, you know, changing what your expectations are because, you know, you won the league or you, you went to the playoffs. Um, so I think it starts right there. And then it's just one of those things that's, that's constant is, um, you know, you never, you know, in, in the program, we try not to, you're not going to relax. You're not ever going to feel satisfied, which obviously, as you know, can be very difficult on you at times. Um, but I think you got to find a way to have that balance. And uh, it's hard, and we don't want to talk about replacing Desmond Ritter, um, Ahmad Gardner, and, and Kobe Bryant, all those guys. But, you know, I keep pounding away about guys. We're going to, we're plenty good enough to have guys that are going to throw touchdowns. We're plenty good enough with guys that are going to cover. What those guys did a phenomenal job of is playing and doing it all together. And that's what we've got to replace more than trying to replace a Desmond Ritter because you can't. Luke Fickle is joining us. Luke, I hate to make it worse. Like, I hear what you're saying. Like, you can't be spending all your time <laughs> oh, talking no, about how do yeah, we. I understand. You know, I mean, I'm, but my, the point I'm going to make to you is you're right. You can't spend a lot of time saying, how do we replace these guys? How do we replace these guys? But the thing is, not only will they go, but when you have the success that you're having and that you're building what you're building, not only will the players go, but then people are going to come to try to get your assistant coaches as well because there's that kind of quality. So, how have you approached the process of replacing? assistant coaches when you know those phone calls are coming well they've already come of course and uh i'm very fortunate that in the in year one when we were absolutely terrible um we lost i think two or three coaches and you know my first year i'm like blown my mind is blown like what in the world how can you lose coaches when you're terrible like you know i thought it was supposed to be you know when you have success that stuff happens so i think i was fortunate in year one to lose guys and uh Outside of pulling my hair out that year, it helped me learn, um, okay, now, when a guy leaves, we're going to find a way to make our team better. It doesn't mean we go and get this next coach that's better than the coach that left, but we know our team better, we know our environment better, we know what our culture needs to continue to grow. And you look at those opportunities to bring guys in that can give you something maybe that you don't have. So I've tried to find the positive when those guys go, and it's a great opportunity for them. How can we try to make it better for our program and our kids? And um, so I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying I didn't pull some hair out again this year. Uh, but we've been very fortunate um, finding new ways to bring in some people with some different blood, maybe some different energy that can add some something different to where our program is today. I think that is so key. That makes so much sense to me. Luke Fickle joining us. Now, the one guy you have is your strength coach, Brady Collins, and he's getting a lot of attention and a lot of love at the Pro Day because of how much the players have grown and changed during their time in the program. What has he meant to the program, and how much does he help lay the foundation for everything you're looking to accomplish? Everything. I, I try not to talk about him because, you know, I'm, I, I don't want guys to, to hear more, but no, he's everything. I, he came up to me and said, let's go over and watch the, the combine, which I have no interest in driving over there to do it. But if he asked me, we get in the car and we go over. He wants to go to the draft. I'm like, I, if he wants to go to the draft, I'm going to load him up. I'm going to find a way to take him to the draft because he has been the rock for me and, and, and his whole staff. I mean, he has been the rock from day one. And, uh, you know, obviously offense and defense get a lot of credit, different things, but to me, the consistency in our program starts down there and, and the way he talks and his ability to echo everything that us as coaches talk about, I think is for us has been the, the greatest asset and the ability for our kids to grow. And that's not just physically grow, but emotionally grow, mentally grow and all those things because there's so much consistency with him and his group of guys and his staff. Um, that just mirror everything that we talk about about building football players. Listen, I so appreciate the way you answered that because you could have said, like, I don't want to really talk about this or give me <laughs> – you could have not given me an answer like that, hey, Luke, for true. fear that people will find out. But I think people Nobody already know, but away. you have my word. I will never ask you about him ever again and put you in that spot to see how great he is. But I know how important <laughs> he is, so I wanted to ask. You had your spring game on Saturday. Usually that's the end of spring camp, but that's not how you approached it this time. You still have two more practices after the spring game. What was the thinking behind that? 
Well, that was what we've done for a couple of years. And, and normally you have a spring game and, you know, the day after maybe you wrap some things up and then the coaches go out on there on the road for the next two, three, four weeks recruiting. And your guys have a little bit of time off. And the greatest opportunity you have to evaluate your guys in that environment where it's as close to a game as you can make it, um, you don't get a chance to really kind of evaluate and, and make the corrections and, and pound it home. So try to keep two practices for after that. So you still got your 20 hours the following week. You can watch that. You can spend a lot of time evaluating, and breaking it down because it's the closest thing that we get in college to a game and then still have the 20 hours and two practices to kind of go back and make sure you, you correct all those things, uh, adjust and make the, make some, you know, obviously changes and grow from that opportunity. And, and that's something that goes all the way back to when I was in school. And I just remembered, I don't think I ever watched the spring game that I played it because, you know, you were off for the next couple of weeks. And, uh, I thought it was a, an opportunity that we got to do a better job of making sure that we can use that as a, as a teaching tool. Hmm. Luke Fickle joining me for a few more moments. So you've got Evan Prater and Ben Bryant battling for the role of starting quarterback. Maybe, maybe you could share some early thoughts on that. And then on top of that, like what are you looking for from that position, both in terms of on-field play and leadership? Well, I think the most difficult thing that, you know, number one thing we want is that leadership from that spot. It's so critical. And you know, I mean, I don't care what level you're playing. If you don't have a guy at that spot, meaning the guy that whatever he's going to do, that he, that he can lead and guys can follow, it's really difficult. And the toughest thing when you're in a battle is trying to develop that leadership and the, the, the trust in the guys that are around you. So twofold, you love competition. You love the ability to make those guys go out there and compete. It doesn't allow them maybe because they're bouncing back and forth with the ones and the twos, maybe to develop and show that leadership that they really have. Um, so there's some things that, you know, we got to hone in and try to figure that out as we get into fall camp. But, uh, I'd like to tell you that there's a lean either way. I think the unique thing is, is we tried to highlight in the spring and the same thing we'll do in fall camp, both of their strengths, cause they're different. But as you get into camp, you're going to have to start to figure out what gives you the best opportunity, uh, for your team to, to win. Hmm. So how about a final thought? You and I have talked about Desmond Ritter in the past, and I've talked with him as well as he gets ready for the NFL. What would you tell an NFL team about what they're going to get when they draft him? He's a winner. He's a winner. And I think, you know, in in all different ways. In year one, (laughs) he found a way for us to win 11 games when, A, we really struggled at wide receiver, and he struggled at throwing the football as he was developing. And uh, but he still won. He won 11 games. And in year two, he grew a little bit. We still were struggling with you know, some consistency at wide receiver. And I think in, in game two, he got kind of dumped by Chase Young <laughs> on a sideline. And for the next five weeks, he wasn't the same with his shoulder. So he couldn't throw the ball that well, even his sophomore year. But yet he found a way to win 11 games. And then junior year is COVID. And we started off kind of rough you know, throwing some interceptions and, and kind of getting to know the wide receivers because we had a new group. Um, but yet he found a way to win 10 games. And then this year he kind of threw it all together with had some consistency at wideout. And another, he found a way to win 12 games and in different ways each year. So the guy is a winner and he's a perfectionist and he's going to work and work and work. Look, I want to be real with you for a second. I want to ask you something before you go. Like, it seems to me, I'm looking at what you've done there, and I think you've done an absolutely incredible job. And not only that, but you're losing key guys. Everybody wants a piece of you now. Everybody's calling, but you're not looking around. It seems to me from the outside looking in, you're digging in, and you're coveting this challenge, and you're not looking for a way to parlay this into something else. Am I right? And why is that? And how are you approaching it? I think you're definitely right. In order to you know, kind of leave a legacy, you can't do that in just a few years. And I know all things are different. And, and, and again, you got to be able to you know do what you believe is best. And everybody's got to do what they believe is best. But for me, for my family and all that we do, this is a place that uh, not only do we love, I got it deep down inside. Like we can grow. We're, we're nowhere close to where we can be. And I mean that not just as a football team, but I mean as a whole um, everything that that, that there's so much growth that that keeps me incredibly motivated and uh that's what really i you know not being able to play anymore coaching is the next best thing you know because you don't lose that competitive fire 
And no matter what, if I feel like I can grow, I feel like I'm in the right place. So it's good. It's great for me. I love that message. I love that message. He's the head football coach since Cincinnati, entering his sixth season with the Paracats, and it seems like it's a long way off, but it never is. They open up their year at Arkansas September 3rd. Luke, really appreciate it very much. I appreciate the relationship, appreciate the conversation, and thank you so much for coming back on. That was great. Always and anytime, Jim. Thanks, man. Pre- thank you. Having me. Clones, what do you want when you're craving protein or you need more energy? Not bars, not sugary snacks, not energy drinks. You want beef, pure and simple. Where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper Beef Jerky. Old Trapper is not your old man's jerky. Shriveled, dry, tasteless. Old Trapper Beef Jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. It's tender, it's tasty, it's not tough. And why is it so good? Because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for its relentless commitment to quality. They take smoked beef extremely seriously and you can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein. It comes in four amazing flavors to satisfy all your cravings. Quality smoked meat at its finest. It goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. So look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. Clones, if you do not see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? A pretty wild gambling story, and it involves a racehorse. Hold up now. I know a lot of you have no interest in the fact that we own and we breed thoroughbreds. So I pick my spots very carefully when and how I talk about this on the show. I get that. I also know that while more and more of you are learning about and dabbling in gambling as more and more states legalize it, that some of you will never do that either. I also understand that. However, something happened over the weekend that was so incredible that there's no way that I do not talk about it. And those who know already know the story, kind of, but you don't know the backstory. And even if you don't know the story, I think you'll find this interesting. So we're partners in a stallion named Straight Fire, along with LJ Foxwoods and KMN Racing at Al. You might recall this particular group owned Straight Fire. Remember, I told you the story about how we named him Straight Fire. This group owned him as a racehorse, and then when he retired, he had a short career, he got hurt. Now we're trying our hands at breeding him as a stallion. So meaning, we can breed the fillies or the female horses that we all own to him, but the real play is to get others to breed their horses to our horse. Because the truth is, the real money in horse racing is not in horse racing. It's in horse breeding. The home run is not in running, it's actually in breeding. That's where the real money is. So, although everybody thought that we were crazy to try to stand straight fire as a stallion, my guy Jason Litt was the one pushing it, he never gave up hope, straight fire has actually gotten off to a great start as a sire here in California. All right, so follow this story. It's a really good story. He's thrown all sorts of winners, including straight up G., who Jungle Racing owns, and who's already won multiple stakes. Then Saturday was a very important day for the business of straight fire. Smuggler's Run is owned by KMN Racing and won a stake race at Santa Anita. That's really important. And then they had another straight fire runner in the same race that came in third. So that in and of itself is a really, really good day for the business of straight fire. What that means then is Straight Fire has another stakes winner and some additional black type. Black type is what you get when you run in a stakes race and if you don't win, but you hit the board. Bottom line, the better his offspring run, the better it is for the business of breeding. Obviously, if his babies are winning races, people will want to breed their horses to our stallion. At least that's the hope. So that in and of itself is a good thing. Straight Up G has already won a couple of stake races. And then Smuggler's Run became another straight fire baby to win a stake race. So that's a really good day. And we had another place third. Then the most insane thing happened. All right. So you probably don't care about that. But you have to understand that background and that setup. The most insane thing happened. As part of our straight fire deal... The partners bred some of their horses to straight fire. And again, we can do what we want with the babies. 
We have the straight fire, baby. Straight up G. So we keep him and we race him. And then a few end up in the partnership. So when we breed to this horse, we either keep the baby and run or we take that baby and we sell it. It depends on who owns it and what they want to do. But a few of them ended up in the syndicate as a group. So no one person has the decision. It's the syndicate. And frankly, the, the babies in the syndicate, there were five or six, have not done that well. They're just, they haven't done that well. They're not much. But there was a filly named Power Surge running up in Northern California. And while I've heard some pretty good things about her, she had not generated the type of buzz that maybe Straight Up G did or Smugglers Run. All right, hell, I'm going to be really transparent about this. I really had not tracked this gal that closely, Power Surge. Late in the week, I get an email notification that Power Surge is running in a stake race down here in Southern California. Like an email notification. Like a Google alert about the horse. We're not even talking person to person about this horse. I mean, I got to be honest with you. I've never even texted with or talked with her trainer. Hell, I've never even seen the horse in person. I've never even met this horse, and I own a piece of the horse. She's been running up in Northern California, which is nice, but it's not nearly as competitive as the Southern California circuit. It's tougher down here. So I text Jason Litt, who pushed us to buy straight fire as a baby and who came up with the idea to stand him as a stallion. I said, Jason, power surge, like, does she fit with that group? Is she good enough to run on a stake in Southern California? Or is she going to get her doors blown? Jason, who's always upbeat, says, the trainer likes her. The trainer really likes her. She drew well. Let's take a shot. I said, uh, all right, great. She's 15 to 1 on the morning line. And because I did not know a ton about her, and despite owning a piece of her, and because I thought that we were throwing her in really deep waters, and because Janet and Logan were coming back from spring break, I did not go to Santa Anita for the race. That in and of itself is so unusual. Like, we don't own that many horses now. If one of our horses is running in a race and it's local, I'm going. Hell, you, you know I went to New Mexico twice in the last month. And if it's running in a stake race, you bet your ass I'm there for it. Not only am I there for it, I'm actually sweating it all week long. Then I'm in person to see it, but not this one. In fact, I'm embarrassed to admit, I barely even remembered she was running. And there was no way I was going to go all the way to Santa Anita for a race that I knew we had no chance in. No. You know what I was going to do? I was going to throw the TV on right before the race, make a bet online, see her finish out of the money, and go on with my life. So Janet and Logan get back from spring break. She says they're starving. I say, you know what? Janet, you go unpack. I'm going to run to the store. I'm going to get some grub that we can barbecue. I'm going to pre-record this race because there's a chance I don't make it back in time to watch it. All right, so even that notice, I didn't say I'm going to wait 45 minutes and then go to the store because I want to watch this race. I didn't even say that. Honestly, I'm thinking this Philly's in way too deep. I'm going to hit the market right now, save the time, watch the replay, and get home in time and get ready for UFC 273. Then the most insane thing happens. I go to the market. I get caught up in a couple of things. I literally forget about the race. It's impossible. I never forget a race that we're in. Somehow, some way, I'm this caught up. Remember, Power Surge is 15 to 1 in a stake, running against much tougher than she ever has. Oh, one more thing. On the dirt. She's never run on the dirt. She's never run on the surface. So we have no idea if she'll like it or take to it. It sounds like too big of an ask. So yes, I completely forget about the race while I'm shopping. I get in my car. I drive home. I get a text from my dude, Craig Dato. He says, quote, via text, did you just win a stake at 70 to 1? I damn near drive off the road. And I thumb back, holy F, did she win? He said, yes. My trainer, Richard Baltus, who does not train this one, texts me a second later. Congratulations. Straight fire. I said, Richie, did that Philly win? 
He said yes, and she paid 155 bucks to win. In other words, a $2 bet returned 155 I'm like, are you effing kidding me? I didn't even watch it from my car on my a phone. Car. We had a horse in a stake, and I literally forgot about it, which has never happened, ever. I never forget or miss any race we run in, much less a stake race. And come to find out, <laughs> while she was a long shot on the morning line at 15 to 1, the betters thought so little of this horse, she went into the gate at 70 to 1. 70 we don't run horses that are 70 to 1. We just don't. Solis and Lit, the guys who manage our equine portfolio, who buy our horses and manage them and do the same for others, they don't buy horses that are 70 to 1. They don't run horses that are 70 to 1. That's how little the betters respected Power Surge. She went into the gate at 70 to 1. Essentially, the betters are saying, you're running a goat against thoroughbreds. They could not have disrespected her any more than they did. Then the most amazing thing happens. She pops out of the gate. She's running up front. She's running really well. In fact, too well. Fast as hell. With a first quarter in 21.82. It's not sustainable at all. Not for a 70 to 1 goat. You know she's going to gas out and set it up for the real runners. And they're going to run right by her. And we're lucky if she finishes middle of the pack and not dead freaking last. But she didn't. Insanely. She's on the lead the entire time. She's not coming back to the pack. And then the so-called real runners make their move. And then as she turns for home, the heavily favored Connie Swingle comes up to take her on. The two of them are coming head to head. They're coming home. It's insane. It's an epic, epic battle. Several lengths clear of the rest of the field. Connie Swingle is clearly the class of the field. She's the favorite. She's the one to beat. And our little 70-to-1 shipper from Northern California is running her freaking eyeballs out. And is head-to-head with the favorite. Power Surge is digging in. She's all heart. She's all grit. She's all courage. She doesn't know she's 70-1. to Game is bleep. You cannot believe the courage on this one. If the favorite runs us down and we get beat at the wire, it's still an amazing day. Heartbreaking, a kick in the stick, but still an amazing day. Like I always say, sometimes you run a winning race, but you still get beat. She's running her GD eyeballs out. So a loss at the wire is still a big win. But, but, that's not what happened. This is how it ends. It's Power Surge heading to the 3-8th pole in front by a length and a half. Everly's Girl is racing in second. Connie Swingle at the rail now takes that second spot clearly and is coming after Power Surge. Another three back to Ute, Your Honor, racing on the outside of Professor's Pride. Carmen Miranda is next. Big Novel is out of last, has seven to make up, looking to thread through traffic. A gap of five to at the spa and Money Penny. They turn for home. And Connie Swingle trying to get by Power Surge. Connie Swingle on the outside. Power Surge fighting on bravely. They pass the eighth pole together and they're dominating. Big Novel moves into third, past the 16th. Power Surge or Connie Swingle. Power Surge, Connie Swingle. Power Surge just in front. Power Surge would not be denied. At a huge number, Connie Swingle just missed. Then it was Big Novel in third, followed by Everly. Hey, listen, I, I don't know. That may not resonate with any of you at all. I got goosebumps watching that again on video on CBS Sports Network. Like, I don't know what's more astounding, that this gal pulled it off or that not only did I not go to the race, but actually forgot about it. And worst of all, worst of all, I didn't freaking bet her. I always bet our horses. Always, always. I cannot stress this enough. She went off at 70 to 1. Given how much money we already have invested, trust this. I would have dropped a C note on that for fun. That 100 bucks that I absolutely would have bet if I remembered. Would have returned seven grand. No matter what, I'm going to bet her across the board. I didn't bet a 70 to 1 long shot that came through that we own in part. 70 to 1. I've got a buddy in Canada 
named Matt Jukic. He's in the business. He knows this game cold. Like, he's my go-to before every race we run, we run. Like, he knows more about my horses than I do. And I always ask him, like, how does this set up? What do you think our chances are? He messages me, dude, dude, are you kidding me? Thanks for the tip. I said, my guy, I'm sorry. I forgot. I didn't even watch it. He's laughing and says, hey, no worries. I'm sure there will be plenty of other 50 to 1 shots for you. Meaning that will never, ever happen ever again. I said, dude, it was 70 to 1. And I'm still in shock that she won and that I didn't bet. I said, that's a list of insane gambling stories. If anybody should have known, it's me. We own the horse in part. And I missed on a 70 to 1 shot. It would never happen again in 70 million years. Bleep me. That said, I could not be more proud of the Philly power surge, the job that trainer Blaine Wright and his team did in getting her ready. Ricky Gonzalez, which gave her a monster ride. I should be sitting on a stack of cash right now. But that's what happens when you get caught up and take your eyes off the prize. Any of you, some somebody tell me you were at Santa Anita and you hit that. Somebody tell me that you saw that we were a part of that horse. And that you put something on that and got paid. Tell me that. Somebody. Somebody must have made money off that because I didn't. Because I was asleep at the switch. Absolutely incredible. Wild, wild gambling story. Hey, you know, the very best athletes know that your championship body is not built in a single day. Well, the same is true when it comes to long-term financial goals. Get financially fit with M1. The Finance Super App. It is commission-free, and it makes growing your money easier so you can strategize for the end game. Build a custom portfolio or choose a pre-built portfolio that speaks to your goals. Then, automate your everyday money moves and use your extra time to watch the highlights. They even make it easy to stick to your investing strategy by automatically rebalancing your investments every time you buy into your portfolio, keeping your investments close to where you want them to be. That way, your portfolio sticks to the plan for the long game. There are no huddle-ups necessary. Do this. Visit m1finance.com sports. That's M with the number one. To sign up and see why Money, Investopedia, and Yahoo Finance are all proud superfans of M1. That's M, the number one, dot com slash sports. Investing does involve risk, including the risk of loss. M1 Finance, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. My man, John, good to have you back. John, how are you? Jim, I'm outstanding, my friend. Happy opening week. Always love listening to your show, watching your show. Love the interview with Greg Berhalter as well. Great to have the U.S. national team back in the World Cup. Right, and I appreciate you saying that. And don't you forget about the Frozen Four. I know you're all about that life, too. I am. Denver, all the credit to Denver. A young head coach, David Carl, what an outstanding program they have. A lot of youth there. I thought Carter Mazur was very good for them. Bobby Brink as well, deserving champions, the pioneers of Denver. John Bleeping Morosi joining us. All right, John, you were at Yankee Stadium for Yankees Red Sox and Josh Donaldson opening the season with a walk-off single in the 11th. What was that moment like in the stadium? Loved it, Jim. It was electrifying. And for me, I think it's, it's important to have those moments of gratitude and appreciation of where we're at. Certainly, it was a difficult winter for MLB with the work stoppage. And, and really, it was the first time Yankee Stadium had a full house on opening day since 2019. And so when you think about what that means and just the ability to be together again all in one place, it's pretty extraordinary. And, and just to, to have that beautiful weather, honored to be on the call with Bob Costas and Tom Verducci, Jim, it was uh, quite an extraordinary day to be a part of. By the way, it does not get any better than those two. Costas and Verducci. We're joined by John Morosi. John, so you're going to see the Yankees again this week, as I mentioned, as part of that showcase game against Toronto. How do you like the way Donaldson fits into the lineup, and what do you make of this Yankees lineup overall? Jim, I think that this lineup for the Yankees right now has a lot of potential. It's certainly Aaron Judge, much made of the fact no extension for him, so certainly a lot of conversation about where this is all going, where his eventual price point may be. But to me, the New York Yankees, when you consider the, the maybe the one issue is a lack of left-handed balance. That's why Anthony Rizzo's fast start is so important. You think about the heritage of this organization, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Reggie Jackson, all these left-handed sluggers. Well, each of the last two years, Jim, the Yankees finished among the five worst teams in baseball in terms of total numbers of home runs, 
by left-handed batters. It's astonishing when you consider uh, the ballpark and the way they've been built around power for so long. So I think to have Rizzo starting fast, crucial. Of course, they're able to win that weekend series against the Red Sox. And Donaldson, for me, it was funny, Jim. We were talking actually with Aaron Boone about this. The last player who joined the Yankees and had that played with that edge, to borrow the hockey term, that sandpaper. I, I, I think you have to go back to Gary Sheffield for that, that player that brings that, that edge and attitude, and I love what Donaldson does for that team, uh, certainly in a very competitive division. He knows that division well. He won an MVP award in that division, Jim, so I think for Josh Donaldson, a great fit in many ways for the New York Yankees. I love that you referenced Chef. I love Gary Sheffield. John Rossi is joining us. John, you mentioned Aaron Judge's contractual situation. He's not the only one, right? Sandra Bogarts, Raphael Devers with the Red Sox. Like, in your experience, how big of a distraction is it? Is that nothing, or is that something that can negatively impact a player or an entire team? You know, it's a great question, Jim. I think with Judge, there's there's a lot going on there, certainly, and the Yankees made him a strong offer. I, I would say this, too. One of the more surreal moments I've seen uh, in terms of covering press conferences and GMs, Brian Cashman saying, Jim, to all of us exactly what the offer was that was rejected. I, I, I can't recall that ever happening in my career, being there, especially on opening day, Yankee Stadium, and the GM of the Yankees saying, here's exactly what we offered our best homegrown player since Derek Jeter, and he said no. It was a pretty remarkable set of circumstances, to say the very least. I understand why the Yankees made that offer. I understand why they made it public, just to be transparent and to really show their fans how serious they are about winning. I also understand from Aaron's perspective why he believes that he deserves to be paid among the top echelon of players in MLB. And now the unique part is the better judge plays, yes, the better the Yankees are going to play, but also the higher probability that he's going to get priced out of the market. I think Aaron Judge is someone who is so focused, Jim, that, that, that the possible distraction of a contract is not going to have that much of a negative impact, if any, on his numbers. And certainly we do see some players who really lock it in with laser focus in their contract year. I think Aaron Judge has that kind of personality. Yeah, John, it's so interesting, right? It's like there are guys that do lock in and have that laser focus, and then it takes another breed altogether to lock in, have that laser focus with the pressure of being in that town with that uniform on, and I agree with you. I think that he is built for that and wired for it. What about Shohei Otani? He was nasty on the mound, John, in the season opener against Houston. He's been off to a slightly slow start at the plate. What kind of a season are you expecting from him this year? You know, Jim, it's an excellent question because Otani is someone that it's not precedented, obviously, what he did last year in any possible way. Like, no one did it, not even Babe Ruth. And so now you have to calibrate and say, okay, well, what is, what is reasonable to expect him to do every single year? And, uh, and certainly he, he did have, uh, I think it was, what, 119 miles an hour of an exit velocity for a hit. So clearly, on some level, the, the bat is still working. But, but I also think that there's that, that issue of, of how exactly he gets into a rhythm. And I really think, Jim, for him, because of the uniqueness of what he does, that maybe the shortened spring training impacts him more than it does a lot of other players. There, there has to be, and I'll use this word, such harmony within your body to be able to pitch and hit at this level so consistently that I have to imagine for him that the lack of, of bulk of workload for him uh, in spring training might have more of an impact on Shoei than basically almost any other player in the game just because of how much he has to keep lined up. So I think the one thing for the Angels, they have a better team this year than they did last year, probably the best team they've ever had since Otani has joined. So that's a positive where, where maybe he can lessen his burden a little bit in terms of what the expectations are. But certainly when you set the bar as high as he did last year, Jim, doing things that no one has ever done, not even Babe Ruth, in the history of the game, uh, very difficult, I think, to have an encore. I think that's an awesome description, harmony, that he needs that. John, not that this is an original thought, but I'm playing off the point that you just made, that they look like they're a better team. It's a long, long year. They're off to a 1-3 and three start, but the very, very obvious reset here, there's no doubt that he is a super, super, superstar, but how important is it, finally, finally, that the Angels make the postseason this year so the entire country can see Otani and Mike Trout in meaningful games in October? Well, you're right on, Jim, and that, that I think is where, when we talk about this game and, and, and the sport where we're at, we need those moments where for a player to become truly part of the American 
sports firmament, if you will, uh, and be a baseball player, they have to be there every year for you, or at least often enough in October. That was part of the, the grandeur of, of Derek Jeter. He was there from the time he was 20, 21, and he never left our TV screens until he retired. He was there every single year. And so certainly the Yankees have their own platform that's unique to them, but other players on other teams can become that popular if they win enough. And that simply has not happened uh, with Mike Trout and Otani to this point. It's a very competitive division. I, I'm a believer that Seattle has, has become significantly more competitive. And I think they're a fun story, too. Certainly Seattle, longest playoff draw in North American pro sports currently. And so there's a lot of longing there. The fans have been so patient. They've gotten so close. So Seattle has its own drought to handle. Uh, of course, the Angels, they've only made the playoffs once in Trout's career back in 2014, and they were swept by the Kansas City Royals. So it's a really unique time, and I think for the sport, to achieve the heights that we wanted to achieve, Jim. The Angels do have to become a relevant team where, where fans would have a real passionate debate about how Trout compares to the all-time greats in his position, because you compare Trout's career to Mickey Mantle, and they're darn similar, but we all know that Mickey Mantle is an American sports icon on a level that Mike Trout simply is not, and I think that's, that's going to be the quest for baseball. How do you bring Trout closer into a comparison of the likes of a Tom Brady or, or an Aaron Rodgers in, in, in current times in sports in our country where, where the, a baseball player can become that relevant? He has to be on great teams, Jim, for that to happen. Such a good point. John Morosi joining me for another moment or so. John, I've got to get your thoughts on this. What do you make of the reaction from Ronald Acuna Jr. to the departure of Freddie Freeman and then Freeman's reaction to that? Yeah, it was quite a back and forth, Jim, on opening day, really surreal. Uh, and certainly Acuna began it by telling Jansen Pujols, uh, a journalist in the Dominican Republic, that he would not miss Freddie Freeman at all, effectively, because they had some friction concerning uh, Freddie's enforcement of longstanding Braves traditions or different rules or codes, if you want to call them. I, I think it illuminates a, a disconnect, Jim, that exists between more of the old guard, old-fashioned old way of playing and then the way that, that the, the modern younger players want to play. I tend to believe that uh, you should let players play in the manner in which they choose. Uh, this game is hard enough without trying to be someone that you're not. And so I, I'm always a believer that we have to let players be their authentic selves on the field. It also takes another level to this, Jim, which is the only reason this is a story is that Freddie left. And I really believe when you look back at how close the Braves and Freeman's camp could have been, uh, whose responsibility was the communication, it's hard to say. The blame certainly is shared for the fact that he's a Dodger now and not a Brave. But, but this sort of serves to underscore this should not be a story now because he probably never should have left in the first place, and there should have been better communication probably on both sides along the way to make that happen. Jim, he just won the World Series with the only franchise he has ever known. And while the Dodgers are a great story, he's from Southern California, I get that. Freddie Freeman today should still be an Atlanta Brave. John Morosi is joining us. I could let you walk off on a strong statement like that, but I'm really curious about this, John, and I'm keeping you in a while today, but A's fans have gone through another offseason where one star after another was shipped out. We know this is how Oakland handles their business. Not only do they handle their business like this, they actually do it pretty well, but what does the message send to their fans, and how should they react? Well, Jim, it's an important question that you're asking, and certainly you're right. They have had success with it. Uh, it is difficult, I think, for A's fans in this context that another window has closed without getting to the World Series. They've had certainly postseason berths and some very competitive teams that, that fell short for various reasons within the last decade. And, and now I think one thing, I remember this, this goes back now probably four or five years, this group of players, specifically Matt Olson and Matt Chapman, I remember when they first got to the big leagues and really established themselves, the conversation was along the lines of, this might be the first generation of players that can stay because you hope you have momentum on a new ballpark by the time they're, they're at this stage of their careers where they are right now. And obviously they're not there. Um, the pandemic has affected this maybe a little bit, but as you know, there's, there's lawsuits, a lot of municipal 
regulations and state-level regulations that go into building a new ballpark. And the A's have been quite candid in saying if, if there's not really a ton of progress by the end of this year, you really have to think about potentially relocation of, the, of this franchise. So I think it's that additional layer where, where the possibility of the Oakland A's moving to Las Vegas is now more realistic than ever before. And I think you, you add that, the, the anxiety over potentially losing your team, which, of course, they just had happen with the Raiders. The Warriors are now playing on the other side of the bay. You think about, Jim, all the sports moments that we have witnessed collectively between football, basketball, and baseball at that site – uh, the Coliseum and, and of course Oracle, it's it's sort of it sort of hits you when you think about there not being any pro sports on that site anymore. And right now the A's, after trading a number of their key players, I would say are are perilously close to going down that path unless they get some better news on the ballpark front in the next 12 months. Kind of sad, but I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, you've got a payroll for a team that's lower than some individual players at this point right now. Right. John is going to be a part of the MLB Network Showcase telecast featuring the Mets at Phillies. That's tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Then you've got the Blue Jays and Yankees on Thursday at 7 p.m. He is an MLB Network insider and NHL Network insider as well and a good friend of the program. John, awesome, awesome job. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Jim, thanks for having me on the show, my friend. Always look forward to our conversations. And just thanks for all the great work you do to keep our our whole sports world connected, my friend. My Uh, man, you you too, John. You too. Nobody better. Hey, listen, skincare can be really complicated, especially for men who have never had a skincare routine. This is where Tiege Hanley comes in. Tiege Hanley is a men's skincare company that helps guys start and maintain a healthy skincare routine by making the process uncomplicated. Every single box comes with an instruction card that tells you when to use each product, how much to use, and in what order. I'll tell you what, you should start with the level one system. It is the easiest way to get started, and it comes with all of the basics that guys need to take care of their skin. I'm telling you, I love the product because I was one of those guys, even as somebody who's on TV or in front of a camera, I never really had that great routine, and now I do. And I do because of Tiege Hanley. Listen. Because Tiege Hanley is sponsoring today's app, they are offering you an amazing deal. Just go to Tiege.com slash Rome and you'll get 30% off your first box plus a free gift. That's T-I-E-G-E dot com slash Rome. T-I-E-G-E dot com slash Rome. It is an amazing deal. Tiege.com slash Rome. I know that I, Ray, probably saw the race that I forgot to watch myself. Hi, Ray, dude. What's up? Roby, how you doing, buddy? Good, dude. How about you? Hey, uh, I, I was at the track. I didn't go to Santa Anita, but I went to Los Al. And uh, I had your horse. I, I mean, I saw the jungle racing on there, and I threw 20 on it. So not only that, but the exact is what really cashed in, Romy. It was like 609 bucks for a one dollar exacta. I raised so I got a couple of questions for you. Number one, how much and normally I don't want to be how much did you make or get guy, but how much money did you make off that race? Um just including the exacta and the, the, the tickets I had on your horse, um almost a little less than five grand. I Ray, you made five grand on that race. Forty eight hundred, forty forty nine hundred. Dude, are you tell me you made you made five gur on that race? Yeah, and I only bet like twenty five bucks. Oh, dude, incredible! I Ray, what did you think when you saw a jungle racing horse go off at seventy to one? Well, I figured. Uh, I don't know, Ruby. That horse shouldn't have gone off at that hot long of odds. She's not that bad. You know, I mean, her pedigree and her, she's out of a mayor by Thunder Gulch. I've always, I've always liked Thunder Gulch's pedigree, so. You're right. Yeah. You know, You're she, right, she's dude. She's not that bad. You're right. So, Ira, if you knew you had five girl riding on that and you saw our girl headed for home and you saw that favorite loom up on her, you know we don't have that kind of class and you know they were running fast up front. What was going oh, through your head? Pollen. She went 21 and something in the opening quarter. Yeah, I know, right? I know, it was quick. It was just, I was almost pissing my pants, dude, coming down the stretch when the other horse hooked her up, and she just wouldn't let her go by. She's kind of like shared belief in that 
in, in that manner that she just, you know, when she gets hooked like that this, in the top of the lane, she battled that horse the last eighth of a mile, if not more. And not only that, but a heavy favorite. Like I raised, speak before I go to break, speak to this. Explain the grit that our girl showed in digging in the way she did. Yeah, she definitely, she definitely hung in there. Thunder Gulch's uh, uh, youngsters have a way of really fighting. I've seen it before in some of his offspring. But Romy, before I go, before you go, did you see uh, Kaba's race on Saturday, the Santa Anita Derby? Yes. Absolutely phenomenal, dude. Probably the best Santa Anita Derby I've ever seen as far as as uh, showing up as far as the winner's uh, action there. That horse is a monster, dude. She, I, I guarantee you, I can't guarantee you, but I think she. I think he might win the Triple Crown. It's It was a big-time performance. Good night now!